Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. You make your luck, and that's when Jeffrey Curry walks in the studio from Goldman Sachs with a bigger, larger macro view on oil, and yet he knows there is a bank, a financial arm of the oil business that happens to look for oil called Exxon as well. So we're going to fold some sell side here on ExxonMobil. Earnings up, the stock moves up 3%, and Jeff Curry here to rip up the script on big oil. How is American big oil doing right now? Not so much sell side analysis, but from your purview. Well, I think when you look at their ability to attract capital, one of the biggest issues right now is the ESG issue. And how do they restructure themselves such that they be able to become more relevant in this right. decarbonized world? And we think big oil is going to turn into big energy. And they're going to do that by buying gas assets, right. LNG, um, gas here in the U.S., power assets. I just did a fabulous seminar with Robert Litterman, a great financial guy. It's like Black Scholes. He did a huge amount of work with Fisher Black years ago, and he has led the study of climate change and all that. And he led our session of sustain Bloomberg Sustainable Summit on Exxon finally catching up. Is big oil gonna go green? I'm not gonna say they're gonna go, go, go green, but they're gonna put a greater emphasis on green type assets. So they basically, instead of um, letting go of their dirty assets, they'll add on more clean assets to balance out the overall carbon footprint. And so they become big energy. Does natural gas factor into that as well? Oh, it's critical to it. I, LNG is a really important part of, of that overall strategy. The reason I bring this up is because we've had a big deal, but it was three years ago and I haven't seen one since and it was Shout BG. Right. So when's this stuff really going to start happening? I, you're seeing the, the FID beginning to happen, that they're going to go out and build this, these capacities. Interesting. Well, because in terms of looking at where the marginal growth globally comes for energy, it's on the gas side, so you need to build these assets. So what does that mean for crude supply, Jeff, if they're going to go out and spend a lot of money doing these other things. What does it mean for crude supply? It means that the supply of crude is going to come from U.S., E.M.P., Saudi, and Russia. You know, so it's the big OPEC plus plus the shale guys is going to be the ones yeah. that deliver crude at the margin. Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs, with us. So much of what you do in industry is what you don't do. Did the Canadians get it right with the sands? In hindsight, was that like smart investment? And was maybe Exxon smart because they didn't do Canadian sands? Well, if you go back to 2005, everybody thought it was the, the future. And yeah. part of that is because we did not know what shale was. And then we shifted around 2009, thought Brazil okay. was the future. Yeah. And we still didn't know what shale was. And by 2011, 2012, we realized, hey, shale is the future. So I don't think it was a mistake. In, right. in hindsight, it is. But at the, back in 2005, it sure wasn't a mistake. Are the Saudis astute at those technological shifts or are they blind to them because everything's so perfect for their hydrocarbons? Well, again, they're at the bottom of, uh, of the cost curve. They're, they're as intramarginal mm. as one can possibly get. And so in terms of thinking about what the, how this impacts them, it just tells them where their support's going to be. So if you go back to 2005, 2006, we thought shale was a $125 barrel proposition. Yeah. That's why we didn't think it was doable. We thought um, oil sands was We're an 85, 90. 85, 85, yeah. 90, yeah. Um, so in terms 
terms of you know thinking about how does that impact Saudi, it impacts where the price level is going to be. Now we think that that marginal barrel is a deep water offshore um, platform, which is somewhere around $70 a barrel. And that's where back end Brent is right now today. Let's talk about the oil story of the morning, Iran. Now, the message to anyone buying oil from Iran was stop buying oil from Iran. And then as it got to the deadline, we're starting to find out from a senior administration official, um, according to the reporting here at Bloomberg, the United States is about to let eight countries, including Japan, India and South Korea, to keep buying Iranian crude. What is going on? Well, I, I think a question, as you alluded to, is what was the market pricing at? I, I don't think the market was pricing in zero Iranian um, exports. Um, I think it was probably closer to around 800000 a day. Um, our expectations were 1.2 to 1.4. You take, if you go take that, you got those eight countries dropping by about 50% going into uh, yeah, the 180-day mark, then you would be talking a number around 1.2. That still gives you a deficit in fourth quarter. So it's still a bullish outcome in terms of thinking about the price, which is why we think the market's oversold here. Well, let's talk about how much crude has rolled, o rolled over. To what degree do you think it is oversold? Um, looking at Brent and WTI this morning. Uh, crude, crude's going to $100 a barrel. It's going to happen. Hundred. It's going there. That was two weeks ago. Two weeks it's ago. going on $100. I don't think it was Jeff Curry two weeks ago. Not, no. not us. We, we were 82 weeks ago and we're 80 today. I, 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 I think that the key point there is really that with you, know, you have relatively strong demand. And I think a lot of that sell-off was demand-driven because you saw it in the equity market. In fact, we, when we do a decomposition of the run-up, it was Iran and the sell-off yeah. was demand until yesterday it became Iran. But I think the key point is you got three reasons why you want to be long, long oil. Positioning. Um, the market, all the length has gone out of the market. Two, inventories are finally beginning to draw so that the impact of the decline in the Iranian exports is now greater than what that increase in production has been out of the US, Russia, and China. And then the third reason we're seeing it in copper today, the EM environment is probably not as bad as people think. The downside risk is that the Saudis need to buy some fo foreign policy favors, some diplomacy, um, and that they need to keep the President of the United States on their side following the foreign policy crisis, the diplo diplomatic crisis of the last couple of weeks. What do you think of that? I think that they have delivered on that promise. You know, you, you see, if you look at, again, the numbers that came out in the last um, several days, Russia, Saudi, and the United States all massively increased production you know, in anticipation of this Iranian decline. Now, I agree with you that that means they're more likely than not to be more cooperative with, with the U.S., but I think they'll also try to de defend the, yeah. the $70 downside. I want to go back to circle back here in the time we've got left with you, Jeff Curry. Uh, again, somewhat to the sell side, I'm sorry for that. What did big oil learn from 100 down to $29, Brent? And what are the best practices of Exxon right now or Chevron or BP? Maybe there's a laggard you know that I don't know. But what, did, what were the lessons learned in joining from 100 down to $29 a barrel? Well, I, I'd say one of the, the, big, the big lessons is that cost support isn't cost support and that you have many macro variables that, that are at play here. In fact, I like to give an example that, that I learned on that is that if you took the cost basis of Canadian oil as $120 a barrel in 2014 mm -hmm. with an implied return of somewhere around 20%. Guess what they were when oil was at $45 a barrel? What were the return on those assets? North of 21%. The whole world repriced. And so that where you they were on the cost curve right. continue to shift as you move down. So when you have those big repricings okay. from 100 to 25, it's a macro has, repricing. Has that cost curve shifted up with the recovery in oil? 
Yes, it has. We've, we've seen inflationary How, why pressures. Why is that? Inflationary pressures? Inflationary pressures. Labor? A lot of it because you're now stressing the system at a rate we haven't seen it stressed since you know the, the, the early part of this decade. So they go in tandem. They're, they're symmetric. They go down the same way they go up. You know, that's always what people like to say is it, you know, the, which one's the chicken and which one's the egg? Is it the yeah. cost or the no, price? We, we do that in surveillance every day. It's Friday. Do we do chicken yeah. and egg on Friday? <laughs> you can do if you okay, like. Okay, we can. No, but I, th- but I think right. the, the, the broader is- issue here is it strong global demand for oil increasing yeah. the demand for service activities. That creates the inflationary yeah. pressures like we're seeing across the broader economy. Never enough time. Jeff Curry, thank you so much. With his work in London over the years. Yeah. So he's probably had PG Tips tea. He's had PG Tips tea. He's had PG Absolutely. Tips tea. I, he's a big fan of the city of London. Jeff, Jeff is great to catch up. Good to see you, Thank Jeff. You Eric Ross is with us with great acuity, great granularity on Apple. Eric, I just looked at the fancy Bloomberg chart on Apple. And we're down something uh, in the vicinity, uh, Eric, we're down something in the vicinity of three standard deviations, three standard deviations on Apple, you know, 222-ish, and, you know, you go down in 207, 208 uh, right now. It's been an abrupt move. Is it an opportunity to buy shares today? Well, we see it that Apple clearly uh, missed what the guidance was being expected by the analysts out there. So... They do deserve to get punished a small bit, but when you start looking at what's actually happening in 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 their business overall, yeah. the smartphones are a slowing growth type of business, but Apple continues to take more and more share there. But if you look at everybody else in the smartphone business, all the Android players, Samsung, Huawei, Xiaomi, they're barely making a profit. They're seeing their units continue to get ground down. It's, it's a terrible market. Apple has figured out the formula to make a tremendous amount they of money. They did that, there. what, six years ago? I mean, they've always been the premium product. That's a fact. They have, but they, they now increased more so. their their pricing dramatically last year and that made a huge difference in the amount of money they were able to pull out of the the okay. smartphone supply have you chain. done some of the parts analysis i know your target's 250 it's an opportunity for you folks early this morning morgan stanley cut uh, their price target on apple and there's other dynamics out there as well but has anybody done a legit some of the parts like what is services actually worth uh as far as services being worth uh, separately from itself, I mean, it's trend. It's, it's basically about ten billion in revenues a quarter. So yeah, you're but talking what about multiple do you billion. slap on something that's got what one hundred and twenty percent EBITDA? Yeah, I mean, a company that would be separate by itself, equivalent to that. What would be the name you would come up with that would be an equivalency to Apple services? Well, you can look at something. Like, it's a little bit different, but something sure. like a Salesforce. Okay, Salesforce. Yeah, so. You know, so you're talking about uh, a multiple that's definitely north of 20 and it's probably north of 30 right now. We don't cover And how does Apple price that right now again? Compare that. So, you know, Apple, you're talking about, uh, you know, earnings are probably on the order of $5 billion a quarter right now. So you're talking uh-huh. about roughly $20 billion a year times, call it 25 times. So mm-hmm. you're talking about, uh, if I'm doing this right, uh, 
You got a price yeah. target that's yeah. way up there. Yeah, it's way, way up. Way, way up there. And we'll let you write that out before. <laughs> Can you do us some of the parts for us and get back to us Monday by 10 uh, yes. a.m.? That, that's what they do in the real world, isn't exactly. it? Absolutely. That's what clients tell me. <laughs> what did you learn in a conference call last night? There's nuances. The media reports that I think the media does a much better job than they used to. But what was the distinction you heard? Well, the media actually does do a very, very good job at pulling apart what's going on in the Apple report, even before the analysts get to, to, to do it. There's a lot more people covering it real time that weren't doing it five, ten mm -hmm. years ago. But the thing that we noticed most about the call are two things. One, Apple is moving very heavily into what they're calling the ecosystem what's play, that? which is essentially they have a huge install base of their products, not just the products they're sold this quarter, but products they sold two years ago, and people are using it. They're still buying services. They're buying other things like Apple Watch, uh, AirBuds, etc., wearables, the home uh, products, etc., and they're 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 continuing to layer on more and more products there. And Apple is becoming a a sales mm -hmm. uh, channel into that huge install base. And because it's a very protected walled garden type of ecosystem, you can only get in with an Apple product. You can't get in by by logging on from an Android product. Uh, it becomes a, a, an incentive to buy Apple products and incentive to stay. It's kind of like the Bloomberg terminal. I actually I actually talk about this to clients. Bloomberg has built an incredible walled garden where if you're not in it, you don't have the really? ecosystem to be able to communicate back and forth with clients. And if you're not okay. there, then people notice. Then with that is what I call, and I've written memos on this, folks, annuity pricing. My great criticism of the last 24 hours is the outrage and at times moral outrage of $1,000 toys, except they're not. They're perceived as $52 a month toys. Do you value a company differently if the linkages to the customer are monthly fees versus a one-time cash payment? Yes, again, moving more towards what I would call the ecosystem play, which is much more of an annuity uh, type of payment system. How do you value uh, terminal value differently with an annuity type payment system? Well, I'm more looking at examples of what's been gone on in major tech companies before. And so we look at Microsoft as being a great example of this. So okay. right now, Apple is looked at as seller of iPhones, but they're not necessarily a seller of iPhones. They're now looked at as uh, they're not trying to move into, although I don't think analysts believe them quite yet, into being an ecosystem sale into their huge install base. Microsoft has made this transition in, right. in a very meaningful way where they're not just selling office products, they're now selling an annuity software as a service office products plus all, right. all, all kinds of other products like that. And the stock has, has really rocketed in the last three years since they so made that transition. I've got a forward PE on Apple off the Bloomberg of 16-ish, 17-ish, you know, folks, this is Friday chit chat, so don't hold me to that, 16 or 17, and I've got Microsoft with an equivalent 24. Yes. So basically that's a four, I'm off the top of my head, a 40% lift of Apple valuation up to Microsoft valuation if the street figures out the annuity benefits of that cash flow, right? Absolutely, and if you look at it, the, the comparison's actually very good because- I did okay. Five, three, three years ago, yeah, Microsoft's doing very well, but uh, you know, three years ago, PC was considered a dead, dying platform. Microsoft was selling office products and operating systems mm -hmm. into that platform, plus right. some other growth areas, but those were very small pieces of the business. Nobody really believed that that could happen, mm -hmm. but they knew that if they could sell that again as an annuity, as a software, as a service, 
type of product to be pushing the cloud that they could get a better multiple, better understanding. Apple's at the beginning of this process. Mm. I think longer term, it's going to be a bumpy ride. It's a bumpy ride for any company that's trying right. to change the way that Street values it. But I think that as we look forward, this is going to be a much more uh, predictable type right. of earnings stream, <clears throat> steady earnings stream. What's the cash drama to come? Is there now a calendar date? where they do massive share buyback or reaffirm share buyback, or they do a real dividend lift? Is there like a, we got through the holidays, February, March, April kind of calendar date where Eric Ross says, this is where we'll know what they'll do with that cash? Uh, this is unfortunately beyond the pure view of the type of research that we do. We're not really very tight with the management team as far as their plans go. You're not on speaking terms with, uh, with Tim Cook on this. <laughs> not not really. We're really pulling a lot of data from the supply chain of what's going on, where the components are What do you going, see there right now, particularly with China Dynamics? Well, actually, things look very good in the supply chain. So last year, mm -hmm. when we were looking at it this time, the supply chain was barely growing at all. They were having a lot of problems get the product out. And we could tell that there were problems with the display, problems with the sensing, problems with the fingerprinting, uh, fingerprint uh, yeah. measurements. Uh, and this year, it's the complete opposite. They had a nice steady ramp over the summer to release the XS and XS Max, or the 10S and 10S Max. Have you seen the new Air? Have you uh, seen the new I haven't seen it in person. I've only seen the specs. So, have you uh, had two children a, have their laptops break in the last 72 hours? <laughs> that would be me. Yes. <laughs> Eric Ross, thank you uh, so much. We now turn far more towards the policy of all this and a better America with Betsy Stevenson, of course, at the University of Michigan and her work for the Department of Labor ages ago. Betsy, there is no other issue in America on this Friday and towards this election than immigration. If you were standing with undergraduates in Ann Arbor, what would you state to them in a class on our immigration dynamics right now? Well, I think what's going on with immigration has a lot more to do with uh, you know, the sort of politics and how people feel about it than the labor market. I mean, we have a very tight labor market, um, and certainly, you know, we've seen over um, the last year there there are certainly areas where um, the reduction in, in immigrants has left some businesses scrambling, um, and that's. You know, one of the big puzzles this whole year has been if we don't have enough workers or if the labor market's tight, why aren't we seeing wage growth? So, you know, we saw strong wage growth in this yeah. report. So we're starting to see that some of that's picking up. But I think, you know, that was you know, the, the real puzzle. And, you know, last summer I, I saw a report of a landscaper who couldn't get enough uh, low-cost immigrant labor to do his landscaping services, so he canceled his contracts and shut down. And the real question for economists is, why not offer higher wages and try to hire that yeah. American labor? And that's the real yeah. puzzle. What's right. it going to take to get businesses to pay the higher wages, um, right. you know, which will okay. attract the American that, Betsy, we've got listeners out there saying, Professor, that's great, but that immigrant landscaper could be an American adult or a college or high school kid instead of that immigrant landscaper. How do you respond to that in the reality of the modern American economy? 
Well, I think the reality is that they aren't applying for jobs, right? That's why we saw people uh, shutting down. Um, and I, I think that's what I was trying to say is the question, you know, yes, we could pay much higher wages and try to attract more Americans to those jobs, but that is going to push prices up. Um, and the, the, the question is whether people want to pay to have someone do their lawn at those higher costs. Um, otherwise, the you know people might say, "I'm not going to. I'm not. It's not worth it to purchase these services." So it was worth it when you know I could get them done uh, cheaper, but these higher right. costs, uh, I'm not going to do it. So it, it is, you know, the it, you know, when you think about the reality of the the labor market, you know, Americans are going to college in droves because they want to get the kind of skills that generate higher wages. We've never seen a higher gap between the wages that college graduates get and those that uh, and those that people who don't have a college degree are getting mm-hmm. in the United States. It's a terrific time to get a college degree. And we're seeing students who do respond to those incentives and are increasing right. their educational attainment. And that's going to leave us with a gap in these kind of jobs that immigrants have typically done. Betsy Stevenson with us, of course, with the Ford School, University of Michigan, uh, and with their Department of Economics as well. Professor, when we look at the debate of this election as we engage the debate for a presidential election, I guess it's a fully employed America, and yet I get more mail from listeners on professors and fancy-pants Wall Street economists saying it's fully employed, and the people out there that I hear get letters from every day say, you are out of your minds. How did that divide come about? I think, you know, it really comes to not just can you get a job, but are you able to get a job that pays you a wage that you feel allows you to earn, you know, to have the living standard that you're expecting given the investments you've made in your skills? Uh, do you have a job that provides you a career path that yeah. you think you're going to be able to grow? I think Americans do feel like the labor market um, is in a difficult place for them. It's not uh, necessarily giving all workers access to those career career paths, and there's a lot of risk that's been shifted onto workers. Now you're not, you know, you're responsible for figuring out your health care, your retirement. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, you may get more hours this week uh, or less hours this week. You've got this, you know, your income's going well, up and down week to week. We see a lot of income volatility, even when employment is okay. high. You know, these are the kinds of problems that matter for people who are trying to pay their mortgage, pay their rent, put food on the table. One final question, if I could then. Can we get back to a better full-time America employed waged and benefited or do we just need to get used to a gig economy and its instabilities um you know i think that's a a difficult question i think you know the the real question is there's a lot of people out there doing really well there's a lot of corporations out there doing really well and what could we do what should we be doing to make sure that those gains this strong economy is producing a ton of money for some people how do we get that more broadly distributed are we getting that betsy this is critical i I wish we had more time we got to do this again are we not seeing those gains filter to labor because executives understand that any marginal wage gain comes out of their bonus amount their bonus pocket is it just that simple of a linkage i can't i can't tell you what they're thinking but of course it is that simple of a link right now you heard that the big corporate tax cuts were going to 
lead the big gains for workers. They didn't lead the big gains for workers. What did they lead? You know, they led to uh, stock buybacks. They led to big payments for the mm-hmm. shareholders. So we have seen that labor share of income has gone down, and this, you know, this recovery, this strong economy, has not changed that fact that what labor's getting is a smaller share than what it used to be. And if you're growing the pie, but you're shrinking labor's share, labor doesn't care that the pie is growing. What they want is their share back. This has been wonderful. Betsy Stevenson, thank you so much for the Ford School, the University of Michigan, and of course her public service with the Department of Labor as well. For the Trump administration's views on the jobs report, we're now joined on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio by Kevin Hassett, Council of Economic Advisers Chairman, and he joins us from outside the White House. Good morning to you, Kevin. Oh, it's great to be here, especially on a great jobs day, right? A really good jobs day. The economy's booming, it's running hot, Kevin. I guess that's a good reason for the Fed to uh, keep raising interest rates, isn't it? Oh, you go right to the thing that you know I can't talk about. You know, we respect the independence of the Fed. But the thing I can say, though, uh, as an economist, is that not only was job growth really strong, despite the hurricane, but wage growth was really strong, too, going north of three over a 12-month period for the first time since before the Great Recession. And, you know, you and I have been talking about this for more than a year. I said, cut taxes, we'll have a capital spending boom. And then with the capital spending boom, we'll get wage growth. But it'll be supported by higher productivity, and so it won't be inflationary. And so we're definitely seeing the capital spending and now we're seeing the wage growth that everybody said was impossible. We've got this slow quiet pickup in productivity and I think that's really important and not many people are talking about it but on capex I think this is interesting in the last GDP report business investment didn't look good it's decelerated by a fair bit Kevin what's the view from the White House as to why? Well, yeah, so first, if you look at the source data, so the, the advanced durables numbers have non-defense capital goods, uh, shipments and orders. If you look there, then you, you see, you know, basically they were up something like 6% for the quarter. Imports of capital goods were up a lot. And so we were expecting the capital goods uh, spending in the, in the Q3 number to be sort of 7 to 10%. And so the fact that it was so low was a surprise to us. And, and all of the indicators, like, like capital spending plans, you know, NFIB sentiment, all of the indicators are, are much more consistent with the key source data. And you even saw it in the jobs report today. So, so down, in, down in the details, you, probably, you guys probably didn't have time to dig that deep yet. Uh, cap, the employees that make capital goods in this jobs report, they, they increased at a rate of 5 And so there's definitely a dissonance right now with all the data we see and the capital spending in the GDP release. Now, those guys are pros. I I wouldn't want to say anything like they're making a mistake. No, they've got some nuanced uh, micro data that we don't have or something. But everything we look at says the capital spending trend is continuing. So, Kevin, I assume that you're still in this bullish camp where you expect a supply-side response where we can have wage growth but without the inflationary pressures that come with that better output in America. Right, and, and don't forget that it's, it's, it's Econ 101. Everybody who ever took an economics class, the very first chart they showed you was supply and demand, and if you shift supply out, then it puts downward pressure on prices. You know, we've got statistical models, macro models over at CEA, where we put a capital spending shock into an economy as big as our own, and we find that it's actually disinflationary just because that intuition from your first economics class is accurate. And we're, so what we're seeing right now, right, is real wage growth. So, so not only is nominal wage growth above three, we're looking at 3.1 from both the ECI wages and salaries and from what we got today, but the, the PCE deflator is, you know, more than a percent below that. And, and, and so that means that we've got real wage growth, which means that, you know, underlying productivity is what's driving wages. Kevin, that's a bullish story. Here's another one for you. Mm-hmm. A report that the okay. president has asked officials to draft a potential trade deal 
with China. Is that true? You know, the, the, I've seen those reports, and I can't comment one way or the other about uh, what folks are working on for the president behind the scenes. That's all covered by executive privilege. But I can tell you that the president had a very promising call with President Xi. Uh, we're looking forward to him having a very productive meeting uh, when they meet at the G20 meetings. And, uh, you know, President Trump is very, very good at getting deals. It's something that we've seen over and over. I mean, he wrote the art of the deal. But whatever the president's going to meet about anything, you know, if he was going to meet and talk about tiddlywinks, then there'd be a lot of staff all over town helping prepare him for that meeting and so that you know the, the fact that people would be helping him prepare for the G20 meeting is not really news. Well I'm trying to understand news. Kevin if he's preparing for the G20 or preparing for the midterms is this campaign politics or making economic policy? What do you, could, could you be more clear about your question? I can be Are you a saying whole lot does he not want to deal with China? No, no, I can, I can no. say that there's a big, big incentive for the administration to get the market up and get the market route off the front page of the newspaper going into the midterms next week. And I think a lot of people would like real clarity as to whether some of this is disingenuous or not, whether there is a real effort to get a trade deal at the G20 or just an effort to get some better stories ahead of the midterms. Look, if you look at the USMCA deal, uh, which is a great improved modern trade deal, if you look at the free trade uh, talks that we've begun with Europe and with Japan, the progress that President uh, Trump made with President Juncker, you can see that his objective in the trade space is better policy. Better policy is good for America. It makes growth go up. It makes markets go up. And better policy is, you know, it's our objective. It's our long-run objective. And, and the G20 meeting has been on the schedule, you know, forever. And the fact that President Xi and President Trump are going to meet at the G20 meeting has been something that's been considered for a very long time. And so the notion that we would consider great policy just because it'll get us reelected, it's, it's kooky. I mean, come on. We, we consider great policies because we're patriots. We love America. We want to make workers' wages go up by even more than 3.1 percent. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about okay, the sure. deficit and the debt, Kevin. Mm -hmm. John Bolton said the following, and I find this fascinating. Let me read it to you. I'm sure you're familiar with the quote. It is a fact that when your national debt gets to the level ours is, that it constitutes an economic threat to the society, and that kind of threat ultimately has a national security consequence for it. Is the deficit a national security risk? I think certainly if you run uh, you know, all the way forward out 50 years and look at the long run projections, then there are unsustainable policies that will have to be revised, every economist will tell you. And if you didn't do that, then you'd run the risk of all sorts of things, like not having enough money to defend our country. And I'm sure that that's the kind of thing that John Bolton has in mind. Uh, you know, again, in economic models, there's a great opportunity in the U.S. if we have a fiscal consolidation, what economists call it, that it would be a big positive for growth. That's absolutely true. But is there a near-term risk that the deficits are going to cause the economy to tank or something like that? Like, absolutely not. In fact, it, usually the near-term models that model the near-term effects of deficit uh, think, they, in fact, you know, even amongst the Keynesians, so one of their metrics of stimulus is, is, is the deficit, right? I, and, and so they would say we're being stimulative right now. So I asked this question to Mick Mulvaney in the last couple of weeks as well, Kevin. I, I'd love your insight on it too. Is the GOP really still the party of fiscal responsibility? Oh, sure. Sure. But Can you don't explain to me the, how... The, no, no, no. Okay, but let's think about it this way. Uh, so so pre GDP growth was 1.6% when President Trump took office. You agree with that. Uh, wage growth was in the tubes. Uh, every new factory was being built in Ireland instead of here. We had the highest corporate tax on earth and a military that was really, really had worrisome readiness because so little money had been uh, spent on weapons and taking care of our boats and so on. And, uh, you know, planes that couldn't fly because they didn't have parts, all of those things. And so President Trump came in, he prioritized getting the taxes right, fixing the military. 
And the result has been what we're talking about, that we've got a whole year of 3% growth, we've got north of 3% wage growth, we've got real wage growth, the capital spending boom, and a military that's you know, got a bounce at its step again. And so I think that after we have prioritized those uh, objectives, that it's, of course it's natural for us to then think about what the next step should be. And that's why President Trump, leading again like he does, has called on the cabinet agencies to submit budgets that, are, that show a 5% cut yeah. across the board, across all cabinet agencies, because he thinks that now uh, one of the next priorities should be deficit reduction. But there are some contradictions here, Kevin. A lot of people want the GOP to be the party of fiscal responsibility. They want the military to have a bounce in its step. We all do. Mm -hmm. And then we see headlines and comments about sending 15,000 troops towards the border to protect the border from a migrant caravan that, in some estimates, is up to two months away. Does that make sense? Is that fiscally responsible? Well, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a border security expert, but I can say, you know, and, and nor would anyone ever ask me for military advice, I, I can tell you, but the fact is that, that we've spent wisely in the military to repair the things that, that were broken that, and to up the, the spending to make sure that, that the folks that we you know, go in harm's way have the materials they need so that they can win and, and not be harmed. And, and, and I think that, that that wasn't the state that President Trump thought that we had uh, when we got here, and, and, and so we've prioritized that fixing that first. But now, now that it looks like we've made great progress there and with the tax cuts delivering high growth and, and the revenues that come with it, now it's time to, to sit back and, and look at spending in other places. Now, and that's Kevin, exactly what I, the president's I, I asked us to this, do. I understand all of this, and this comes from a, a genuine place, honestly, Kevin. Okay. I, I understand that you want to have this image of being fiscally responsible and you can't comment on national security. But last time I checked, John Bolton is not an expert on the fiscal deficit either. And it just seems that a lot of people are commenting on a lot of things outside <laughs> of their lane ahead of the midterms, because politically it might make right. sense to say these things. And just before we go, I want a final word from you as to where the focus actually is and whether you can actually get things back together and just focus on, this is my job, I'm going to do my thing, instead of having all these other people comment on things outside of their lane. It's kind of an odd question. I guess, what's your lane, right? I mean, your lane is everything that, that I don't know what it's your lane is. It's still questions, but my Kevin, lane, you, know you. My lane is, you know You know what my lane is, and, and, and I stay in my lane. You know, I, I talk about the things I know about and try to, you know, to say, hey, I don't have extra information for you on that thing. And, and, and that's that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and uh, so anyway, I, this whole lane thing is, is not a conversation that I'm an expert in either. There you go. It's like talking about lanes is not in my lane. How about that? There we go. Kevin Hassett from outside the White House. <laughs> Great to have you with us, Kevin. Always a sport, and yes, oh, you do. Great to be back. Always stay Thank in your you. lane. I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.